I'm already geek. I'm already geeking out in some of the gear behind. Like, Isn't no, it funny? I, we're already we're already. This is the beautiful thing about Zoom. We're all checking things out. I'm seeing pictures of your family back there, Greg. Oh yeah. And Karen, and I can see like those are those tiny little things. They look like vinyl, but they're smaller. Are those were those compact discs? Is that what those are? <laughs> half of these like, are half, half of these are, are from Greg's collection. <laughs> I gave them all my CDs. I ripped them and then gave them all my CDs. Yeah, oh. I understood. Yeah. Now I hear you. No, it's some, all it's all coming back. I, few cassettes I have remaining. Cassettes, all cassettes. I'm transferring them as we speak. I've got oh, a DAT machine up there and cassette player underneath, and I had to get it serviced so that you know the belt wasn't bad on it. And yeah, I've been just transferring. God, hundreds of tapes. Those things I've been meaning to do for years, and they've just all been piling up. So yeah. Wow. Time management and during COVID, all these things that we do. What, to keep what else are you going to do? <laughs> oh. I, I've been fortunate because in film and uh, television and stuff, uh, the, the, the two projects that I did work on, they had just finished shooting just before COVID hit. Oh. So, so it's been busy. Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find him at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hi, my name is Amin Batia. I'm a composer of music for film and television, and I work with synthesizers and orchestras, and uh, it's crazy, but it's fun. And welcome to the music. Welcome, 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 welcome. I'm, I, I have to tell you, I, and I know I said this at the beginning, um, I, I, I think I see an 808 above your right shoulder. Yes, sir. That is the original uh, official uh, TR-808. And wow. that's a minimal Voyager. Yeah, I see and a minimal. Then, yeah. yeah. And above there is a DP4 effects processor and then all this Eurorack stuff, which has been growing. You know, when you're somebody old like me and, and you almost get rid of all of your junk in the 90s and then suddenly Eurorack brings all of these analog toys and all of these, you know, tactile instruments back, um, all this stuff has just been coming out of storage. So uh, there's a mini Moog that's going to be joining this thing soon. Uh, an Oberheim expander, which I got from my mentor, Steve Picaro. I have his Oberheim expander. Wow. three. He gave me the oldest one, the one that was almost melted from all the years of being on stage, uh, you know, with, with, with Toto Turing. Uh, but it works fine. Um, so all of those are going to slowly come up and fill this wall. Um, I lost the uh, fight that I had with my wife to clear out the dining room and put modular stuff there because she said something about people visiting all the time. And <laughs> I saw something I saw something I on Instagram about you in bed yeah. with one of your boards, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, they're actually, I don't know if you were joking or not. Uh, no, there's I an Instagram a, post you have of yourself yeah, in bed yeah. with your keyboard. A, a sequential keyboard. I was doing some stuff for them and they needed a promo shot. So I was in a good, I thought I'd do something funny. And so there's me <laughs> and the keyboard and my wife sitting there just pissed. It's so funny. <laughs> it's amazing. Awesome. She's an actor. She's an artist. We met through a mutual friend and we both, oh, yeah. we both support each other in these crazy careers of music and, and theater and film. And so we both, uh, 
you know, we can be having the most romantic dinner or we can be having the silliest fight. But if a phone, you know, if our text goes off and it's the agent, it's like, okay, stop everything. I got to go see what, <laughs> what this is and go deal with it. So it's wonderful having somebody who, who totally gets it day or night, week, and one of us can be deep in writing something or rehearsing something and yeah. the other one totally gets it. It's wonderful. That's cool. Could we yeah. take a moment, um, you know, because, you know, Greg just geeked out there. I was going to like leave and come back after half an hour. Um, <laughs> you could, you could, if you want, because I have lots of questions. <laughs> yeah, Corinne, but you're getting t- in the way, if you don't mind. <laughs> could you spend some time talking about the 808? Like, Greg, Greg is, I think, either on a, on a previous episode or when we're just chatting uh, before, he's, you know, he would just go off on, on the 808 and just talk at length about it. Tell me about this machine. And it's got some sort of like iconic status in the music recording industry, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely does. I think yeah. Roland now has, on August the 8th, they have National 808 Day. Um, <sighs> it was, do you know what? You can never, I mean, both of you as as, as media people and as music, musicians and as journalists yourself, you know this thing can never be predicted in advance. Lord knows any one of us creating an album or a manufacturer creating a piece of software or hardware would love to know which one is going to be the iconic thing. Right. I've worked on films where I was told this is the film that's going to make your career. And it went nowhere. And then I helped somebody on a television series. And suddenly that's that's you know, that's how I make my living. Um, the 808, I think, was just one of those combinations of things. I got to do stuff for Roland synthesizers over the years. And I got to meet one of the guys who designed it back in the mid 80s. Mm. Um, and it just came out at a time where everything was right. It had a combination of a lot of digital things. Well, somewhat pseudo digital things, but mostly it was all about analog stuff. And there's a couple of things in there which are a strange mistake. Um, the bass drum, as everybody knows, is just this amazing, just the nature of the sound and the chip with which it's, it's created just has this amazing low end on it. Uh, the hand clap was actually a series of, I don't know, it was uh, side stick things on the snares or claves or something. It wasn't originally a hand clap. Um, and then it was put together in a very strange way. It's like three different sounds and the volume of the second one is slightly louder than the first one. And so, you know, that ubiquitous, you know, clap sound that, you know, that is a TR-808 clap is actually some strange, um, sticks or something hitting. Um, and I talked to the guy that actually came up with that and he said it was a mistake. And then his assistant said, no, I like that. Keep that in. And then the next thing we know, it became the infamous 808, uh, 808, uh, you know, click track, um, uh, claps. I was, um, this was part of, uh, Roland really changed my world. Uh, I was, I was 19 years old. I was working and studying broadcasting and wanting to get into radio. And a friend of mine, Dave Kletke introduced me to the Roland synthesizer competition. And they had a thing by which you send in a five minute tape of music or something. And so I entered in the amateur category. Uh, and, and then, and then one first prize, uh, which was unbelievable. They put me in the pro category and they gave me first prize. I, I nearly didn't see my name in the right category. I nearly threw the thing out. Um, but as a gift, I got a CSQ 600 sequencer. That's coming. That's going to be on the rack very soon. Uh, Greg. Um, and then, and then, and then this TR-808. Uh, that's, so that's, this, this baby's been with me for, well, you know, oh God, nearly 40 years. And is that, is that, is that the competition where you were adjudicated by both Oscar Peterson and Bob Moog? Is that, that like, so like, like, again, I'm, I'm, the hair on my arms is just 
standing on end right now. Like I can't even fathom being adjudicated. And I know it wasn't just those two, but by those two, I mean, I just like, I'm, I, I got nothing. I got nothing. It is. Yeah, it, it is. It is amazing. It is overwhelming. Yes, it is true. Uh, I think my sister even got a call from Oscar Peterson once and I wasn't there. I was actually at a concert. I was at a concert waiting to meet him backstage. And he called my sister to make sure that, uh, you know, I knew where to meet him. And uh, when I got home, she said, you got a call from a Mr. Peterson. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was like, Oscar somebody? Like, oh, my God. So, yeah, wonderful, wonderful man. He is, I mean, you know, he is beyond human in his brilliance, right? Uh, same thing with Bob Moog. But I had the pleasure of meeting both of them at various points in my life. Uh, and they are as kind and as wise as they are talented. And they just, uh, they have they have this amazing talent, but they are also humble about it. They realize how to, how to you know, how to use it, how to work it, and how to be a, a, a good human being. I, I'm, I've been very lucky. I've had a few mentors in my life that have not only helped me with my music, but we've gotten to know each other as friends, and we've helped each other through all kinds of stuff. Steve Percaro, who is my, my biggest mm-hmm. mentor, we've become the best of friends. We geek out all the time, much like what you and I are doing right now, Greg. Over the years, it became about software. One of us would call each other up, and Apple had changed something on the system software or something, and we'd just vote each other. What did they do? Oh, they did this. Okay, you've got to use this version. Okay, do you have the old version of the program? Yes, I have an old version. I'll send it to you. It became tech support. Over the last few years, the yeah. most amount of time Steve and I spend together is, is tech support. What do they do now? Oh, yeah, don't, don't do this revision because they screwed this up. Um, but we've also become friends. We know each other's families. Um, you know, it took me twice to get right in the marriage department. And uh, Steve was kind of there to help me through what it was like going through a divorce. Not fun on anyone. Not fun on the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, this business is hell. It's enough on us. It's a joyous business, but it's very tough on us. The hours are crazy, and it's very tough on our loved ones. I can see you both nodding. I think I think you know what I mean. Well, I've, and, I've been there. Yeah, yeah. For sure. So yeah. you never want that to happen, but sometimes it's inevitable. But uh, my kids are great. Their mom is great, and and my wonderful wife is a great stepmom to them. So. You know, it's the music is all fun and the tech and stuff is all fun, but you got to have a good life, whatever that life is that you want to have. And I think that's where the good the good music comes from. You know, you were just talking to I listened to your podcast. You were talking to Justine Giles. Yeah. And she was talking about how Toronto was painful for her and she actually had to stop writing for a while and kind of find herself. And I, I totally agree. I think anybody going through this, you've got to you, your life has got to be happy. And if there's something wrong, you got to fix it and deal with it. And, uh, you know, it, it may be you, you have to learn some things about yourself and figure stuff out, but, but surround yourself with good people and make sure your family is good. Uh, and then you can tinker and play and you don't have to worry about stuff and you get to be a kid, right? It's all about being a kid. It's yeah. like responsibly being a child, you know, using the adult part of you to let the inner child of you come out and, and, and all that kind of stuff. I told Nobody. you you'd have to do some editing. What was no, your question? Was did, I even, did I even answer your question? I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in sort of uh, the origin story. Um, you know, I, I see, you know, that some keys behind you. Um, yep. and, I, and I can get, you know, sort of starting off somewhere and, and expanding um, you know, with, with me, I, I came into playing music very, very late, um, only maybe four or five years ago. Uh, my wife gave me a ukulele uh, for, for Christmas, and 
it just seemed like an easy instrument to learn, hey. which which it is. Uh, and then I thought during COVID, well, let me get a guitar, which is hidden behind that Rolling Stone right. album. Yeah. Um, but it is so much more difficult to learn that, especially when there's no teacher that I can go to um, and, and learn at the moment. But what is like, what was your introduction to, to music, whether it was the first stuff you used to hear or your first instrument? Um, to properly describe that origin story, I must confess and come out as a nerd. I am a nerd. I am a Star Wars, Star Trek geek. Okay. Uh, I was eight years old when the Apollo moon landing happened and my parents let me stay up and watch it. Um, I went and saw the movie Fantasia with my dad, which had all my favorite pieces of classical music all done uh, to, you know, to, to animation. And I loved classical music as a kid. Uh, my parents had it on in the house all the time. I didn't know that it wasn't cool to like classical music. Yeah. Um, grade five, grade six, I couldn't understand how all my school friends didn't know about Holtz, the planets or the right of spring because I was noodling things like that on the whole, on the, on the piano, just trying to figure things like that out. Um, so for me, it's orchestral music, but, um, just like you said, even in COVID times and even in not COVID times, you know, it's, it's tough to get an orchestra into a room of this size. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the, the film composers, John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith, they changed my life. I think the first time I, I saw Planet of the Apes, which was a terrifying movie when I was like nine or 10 years old, but the score was amazing. And that was Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, and then, of course, there was Jaws with John Williams, but Star Wars with John Williams. I was the first one in Calgary to have the copy of the soundtrack. I went to Kelly's downtown and they had the first copy that came in. And I'm the first person to ever have a vinyl copy of Star Wars, uh, which I still have, of course. Um, so it was all about that, but wanting to do things orchestrally, but not having those tools and actually not having the training because I didn't do the conservatory thing. I just loved classical music, but I never thought I would make a living at it. So bless my dad's heart. He and my mom got me a mini Moog synthesizer. Um, because oh, wow. Tamita used it because Wendy Carlos used it and I was showing them all the posters of these things and dad said well maybe we should we should get it for you had no idea what the price was we took him to Long and McQuaid and the thing was two thousand dollars and he was like what <laughs> uh but he could see how excited I was and his mom just said you know wow. oh, you know he doesn't want to go to university he's going to go to community college let's let's get him this so that they went into their credit card and they got me this synthesizer and and for the first few weeks i mean the sounds coming out of the basement were just awful um <laughs> i was trying to figure out how it worked I, you know i thought i'd be tamita overnight you know but no it took a long long time and i had a four track tape recorder and so it's the combination of that. You're playing one note or one line at a time. You're recording under track one. Then you listen to that while you're recording under track two. For anybody listening with GarageBand, and my goodness, iPhones now have them. It's so easy to do. But back then, it was a tape machine, and it was one track at a time. And when you were, you know, when you were putting stuff down for track, you know, you had to think about track four when you were doing track one. What's going to come later? What should I play in first? that is the guide to what everything else should be on top of it. This is how the Beatles did their albums. This is and, 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 track, and, and thinking of track five too, from the perspective of taking those four, taking them down to one and then start layering right. on top of that. That's right. Yeah. Bouncing them down and, and the inherent noise that starts to build yeah. up. So you have to be sure which tracks you're going to bounce down and then, and then make sure that all the parts are good because there is no undo button. 
Um, so, so just that kind of stuff, but it, it was something I never expected to make a living at. It was lots of fun. I started doing some radio play things and I did a couple of commercials. Um, but I was in radio. I, I got into CFCN radio and I was a production manager there and producing commercials and, and doing things like that. And then it was the Roland competition that just turned things around overnight. And suddenly I'm getting calls from Oscar Peterson and David Foster and Steve Percaro and, and being a classical guy, I had to quickly catch up on, on who they were. Like, I, I didn't know who David Foster was when he called. <laughs> I knew he had just, I knew he was with the tubes and he had just started doing stuff for Chicago. So hard to say, I'm sorry. He had just come out. Speaking, speaking of people, I mean, that you what didn't you know. Oh, here we go. You know who He's that is. That's Eddie Van Halen. Okay, so you know who that is now. I know who it is now. I know <laughs> the joke. I know the story that you're going to tell. Yes, it is true. I spent an afternoon with Eddie Van Halen in a studio similar to this, and I didn't know who he was. Um, he had just gotten his hair cut, okay? Didn't recognize him. His hair had been cut. This was 1985. Um, and, and Steve brought him in just to hang and he and I were working on some, on, on some synthesizer. I was doing some synthesizer programming for him. Both cases, David Foster and Steve Picaro liked what they heard on the tape and flew me down to LA to be with them. They couldn't understand how a kid with a mini Moog and a four track was coming up with stuff that was really, you know, cutting edge. Mm. Uh, so I, I showed them tape techniques and they let me have access to all of their keyboards. I mean, it was a wonderful, it was the best internship ever um but yeah eddie hung out with us that afternoon and i think even at one point he was asking all kinds of questions and i looked and said do you have you worked with keyboards do you know about <laughs> <laughs> and he was like yeah I, I have some experience with it you know i'm showing him how to do french horn sounds on the mini mode and it was only the next day the band was having a band meeting and they let me be a fly on the wall and they were talking about some delays and getting the album done and all kinds of things. And then they talked about friends that were visiting the studio while they were trying to get work done and stuff. And Steve said, yeah, Eddie Van Halen was with me yesterday. <laughs> I came up to him and said, when was Eddie Van Halen visiting you? I was with you all day yesterday. He says, who the hell do you think you were talking to for two hours that afternoon? <laughs> I, I, I think I, yeah, a sister of my girlfriend still won't talk to me till to this day. Because I actually didn't know who Eddie you didn't know. Yeah. was when I was in the room. But you know what? And I'm sure it's happened to both of you. Sometimes you're in the presence of greatness and you don't know it. And that's actually pretty cool because you can just be you, right? Um, yeah. You know, you, you meet sure. a movie star. I mean, you know, I got to meet Jerry Goldsmith once and I was just, my mouth was just a mess. I was just, uh, Mr. Goldsmith, I was just like, a, I wanted to sing cues for movies he had done. You know, I wanted <laughs> to sing The Omen to Jerry Goldsmith. Thankfully, I didn't. That would have been a stupid thing to do. <laughs> so I, I'm actually glad some of the greatest experience I've had with people is everybody just leaves their ego at the door. Uh, the entire band of Toto was asking about ideas and techniques, which I showed them, which became one of the tracks of the Fahrenheit album. The intro to Fahrenheit is a whole bunch of layers of me showing them what I was doing uh, with a few more synthesizers and a 24 track. And, and Toto kept saying, oh, and then how are you doing this? Oh, what, what would you hear now? What would you like to do? And every now and then I have to just stop and go like six members of the ultimate rock group of all time are asking me for suggestions. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but again, they're such brilliant and humble people uh, to, to be able to learn from them and, and actually be part of making them so great. It's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful experience and it energizes you and it helps you compose better and it inspires you. And 
one good project leads to another good project. Then you get into a bad project with some person who rips you off or you get into something where the film is terrible uh, and you feel awful and you go away for a few months and you don't want to write anymore. And then something else inspires you or something else you hear inspires. And, and it's just that back and forth. And over the years, you get to work on better and better projects. And, uh, and you know, this year, interesting, I was catching up on some stuff. And this year will be, this November, I think, will be the 40th year since I won that Roland competition. Uh, that TR-808 is going to be 40 years old this November. Wow. Um, and, you know, lots of joys, lots of regrets, lots of learning. Uh, I'm making fewer mistakes now than I used to. And that's... One of the things I can proudly say, I'm, you know, grateful You're getting for getting better nominations. But yes, I, I can finally call myself a composer. That's only in the last few That's... years that I actually think I have a handle on what I'm doing. You got a future in this, I mean, you got a future. Don't quit. Let's let's <laughs> let's hope. Bless your heart. What? So you know, in front of you, there's a computer. Behind yes. behind you, you've got all of this, um, all of these instruments that you know someone who's producing music in their room similar to yours and ours are, are you know they're doing it on on a on a mac yep. it, do you have any preference do you still use those instruments and keys and stuff behind you are you more on the computer what, what does your what does your process and setup look like the process is about whatever the sound you hear in your head and the fastest way to get that sound out there. So sometimes, okay. you know, a TR-808 is a TR-808. A Moog Voyager is a Moog Voyager. And there are electronics and sounds in there that you just cannot match anywhere else. Um, now, that being said, that takes time. And when you're working in film scores and television scores, unlike the world of the songwriter, you've got to turn around about 20 minutes of music a week. So that's like half an album every week when you're working hard on a TV show, whether it's Flashpoint or whether it's Anne with an E or even some of the animated shows that I'm working on right now with Ari. Um, you've got to turn stuff around so fast. You're kind of writing like three minutes a day, two to three minutes of music a day. Um, so the computers become the better method to use because you've got recall you can get back any sound. So sadly, I, while I hate them, I do use them. I have TR-808 samples in my computer. And when someone needs that killer groove that is that TR-808 with the cool hand claps, but really well processed, you know, there are, I have libraries, either ones I've created or things that I've gotten from, you know, Spectrosonics and Heaviosity that all have those sounds already perfectly mixed, mastered, ready to go. And if the client changes their mind, I can change that sound on a moment's notice. And in film scoring, that's huge. Um, I don't know if this applies to film scoring or, or many, many jobs, but I've heard that it's, it's not about what you can do. It's about what you can do in the next five minutes hmm. because you are a problem solver. At, at, I didn't understand that at first. At first, when I got hired for a film, I thought, oh, I'm going to be John Williams. I'm going to write all these melodies and be big and orchestral. And they have to work with the dialogue. They have to work with the sound effects. You know, the greatest two-minute theme that you can write is useless if the scene is only one minute and 45 seconds. You have to know how to write to specific things that happen on picture. You have to know how to work around the dialogue. So you can't say the love theme right here. The theme can't happen until after the actor has said this very important line. And if there's a plane flying over or if there's a car driving by, well, that ambient piano might not be the right choice 
of, of you know, instrument to use because it's going to have to compete against the noise. You're going to have to do something that's more rhythmic. Um, so, so the long answer to your question, I love all this stuff when I have time to mine for sounds. Mm. I love just all the patch chords and hooking up old and new things together. So, you know, running, running the old Roland through some of these new Joe filters. And, uh, and then I do have the Moog Mother 32, which has a great sequencer in it. I've, I have it talking to the Voyager. I've got the ribbon controller on the Voyager that runs the tempo map of the entire room. That's, that's such fun. And I sample it and I record it by eight tracks onto, onto eight tracks of the computer. And so later I have those textures. I have those loops. I have those ideas that I can use in a film, in a film project, but day by day to quickly turn something around. No, it's, it's not this gear that I go to. It's the trusty Mac trash can 2013, you know, pro, which is really starting to, it gets really hot. Like, you know, the heat on the thing. I have to, I have to, you know, it tires out before I do. I have to give it a rest whenever I go have dinner or take a break. Uh, Cause I, I'm putting it through a lot, but for film scoring. Yeah. The computers are how we get everything done. I'm now fascinated with your mic, but we'll leave that until, until oh, after it's like you, you turn, you turned away. And when you turn talking. away, it gets louder. Oh, right. When I turn away, it gets louder. Okay, I don't yeah. know what that's about. Yeah, that's way louder. Some sort of proximity effect that I've got the mic pointing the right way. Yes, I do. Okay, that's perfect. That's it's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was yeah. looking at the same thing. I'm like, how is that happening? How is that? Right. <laughs> okay. Wow, cardioid mic. Probably <laughs> some sort of automatic uh, level controlling. So as I turn away, it it ups the level of yeah. the boominess of the room. Yes. Yeah. How is. did you? How did you land? I mean, on making music for TV and film versus um, continuing because you had that chance to work with Toto uh, yep. on their album Fahrenheit. Was there, was there a crossroads that came from that and you decided to take one rather than the other? How did that happen? For me, I loved orchestral music and I was realizing I could do orchestral music with synthesizers. So whatever I could do that allowed me to do that, that's where I wanted to go. Okay. Now, orchestral music in the mid 80s, um, it wasn't really the big thing. I mean, we thank John Williams a lot because he brought back the idea of orchestral music in a film again. You know, everybody talks about Hans Zimmer, but if it weren't for John Williams, it would, it would all be a lot of songs and very little score. Um, so, so anything that allowed me to do that is, is what excited me. And Steve helped me get connected to a new age label called Cinema, which was owned by Capitol. And they liked the orchestral music I was doing. So I did an instrumental album called The Interstellar Suite. So, yeah. so total led to Interstellar Suite, which um, got critical success, but the label had all kinds of problems. And, uh, you know, the, the album has great fans and, you know, it's, it's been wonderful years later to get all this fan mail. But at the time, uh, it was my most enjoyable project that then turned into misery because, you know, the record label folded, the album barely got out, it was barely distributed Nothing came of it, and and I thought this is terrible. I should go back to radio. I could, you know, it's more <laughs> predictable income. Um, and then things started to take off. A director heard Interstellar Suite, so he hired me to write music for Iron Eagle Two. That's how I met producer David Green in Toronto, who is who is a legendary uh, producer engineer. Worked with Phil Ramone, Jack Richardson, and David was the one that really taught me the engineering side of music mm. and how to organize tracks, how to organize your time how to have that balance between art and technology because they both need each other. 
you know, you can't have all tech. And, and if you don't have anything to say, it's a waste of time. Likewise, if you've got this really great idea, but you haven't recorded it properly or you haven't, you know, understood how to mix and master it, it's, you know, it's not going to hold up against all the other great, great things that are out there. So David Green and James Porteous uh, were, were my two mentors on the engineering side of things. And then there were a number of people that just heard my stuff. Um, I grew up in Calgary uh, and uh, hadn't planned on moving to Toronto. I actually wanted to go to Vancouver. I spent a year there. Uh, but but the bigger projects were in Toronto, and I just finally decided, okay, I'm you know as a Calgarian, we're we're not normally fond of Toronto. <laughs> so a lot of my friends and family members were just like, how dare you, you know, and all that. But once I came here, there was no turning back. Uh, I love the hustle and bustle here, and and as you can tell, an energetic guy like me. I love a deadline. I love a whole bunch of people wanting to get something. I love that if I need a particular piece of software or hardware, if it's Canadian, you know, the, the creator of it is probably in Mississauga and I can go there, you know, um, you know, my sequencer needs fixing. I've got Jay at since when, who's going to fix it for me. Um, you know, just, just the support system and, and all the decision-making, a lot of it does happen in Toronto, even, even for all of Canada. And uh, that's changing. And of course, every city is now starting to become its own. Calgary is in a music center, Vancouver, Halifax, there's all kinds of things. But for me, Toronto just worked. In the mid-90s, I was in the right place at the right time. And with David's help, one project was just leading to another and things started to click. And then I started getting you know, involved in some of the really big shows like John Woo's Once a Thief and uh, Nelvana animated shows, Tales from the Crypt Keeper. And, and it just started growing from there. Um, the biggest one is Flashpoint, but again, I'm getting ahead of your agenda, Karim. What is? What oh, I have is no agenda. We've question? we've got we've gone all over. I, I wanted to talk about <laughs> We're so, off the rails. so many other. It's so it, yeah. That that's that's no big deal. Um, I wanted to. I I, I sort of wanted want to leapfrog to a number of different things, but it seems to me that that Roland International Synth Contest really opened up like everything yep. for you. What yep. what came first? Was it uh, meeting up and going to LA with David Foster or was it a meeting Steve and, and Toto and working on Fahrenheit? It began with the Roland competition. Step okay. one. Step yeah. two, one yeah. of the judges of the Roland competition, Ralph Dyke, who was a programmer, worked at Roland Vancouver. He did programming for Steve Picaro and David Foster and he got them both of them, my tapes. Okay. And David Foster phoned first and David kindly flew me to LA. He wanted to learn about how, how what I was doing. David was a wonderful man and mentor and did his very best. Uh, I was 20 years old. Um, Who was David Foster I, at that time? Cause we, sorry to interrupt it, you, but you just he, finished doing the tubes. He was now starting to do stuff with uh, Chicago and in fact, the day I met him, the day he picked me up from the airport, he was like, uh, I just have to stop and help a friend on an overdub. Do you mind? I said, sure. You, you, you've, you've flown me here. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. And uh, it was a recording session with his friend, Bert, you know, Bert Bacharach, and, and his lovely friend, Carol, Carol Bearsager. And so suddenly within an hour, you know, within three days of the call from David Foster, I'm in Calgary. Now I'm sitting at Oceanway Studios in L.A., uh, and David just said, you know, sit in that chair and I'll just go into the booth and just, just be quiet and watch what's going on. I said, no problem. And so he's working on arrangements with Bert and there, and it's the Neil Diamond song, Heartlight. 
which at one point was going to be tied into the movie E.T. I don't know if that's known okay. or not. Mm. Um, but if you listen to the lyrics to Neil Diamond's Heartlight, a lot of that is connected to, to that, to, you know, to that storyline. Um, and then this big voice screamed at me from behind me saying, get out of my chair. And that was Neil Diamond. You pissed off Neil Diamond. I pissed off Neil Diamond. So, (laughs) so yeah, I got a lot going against me. I didn't know who Eddie Van Halen was. And I pissed (laughs) off Neil Diamond. Um, so, and I mean, you know, guy had had a bad day. I didn't know it was, David didn't know it was his chair, but my meeting with Neil Diamond was, you know, sitting in the wrong chair. Great. Yeah. <laughs> then somebody screams, who's this, whose car is this out here? It needs to be moved to a parking lot. And it was David Foster's car. So they said, you kid. So I'm moving David Foster's car to a parking lot a block away uh, while they're singing Heartlight. Um, David introduced me to some people, but because I worked with synthesizers and because the orchestral stuff I was doing was so strange and unusual to the kinds of people that David Foster was used to dealing with, none of them really turned on to what I was doing. So, so while David tried really hard, I, you know, we had a week together and stuff. It didn't really pan out. I was very grateful. He ended up using some of the synth experiments I did. He ended up using it in Thriller. So that was cool. The opening of uh, The Girl is Mine on Thriller with Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. Look at you, Karim. You've got all the albums ready. You've clearly done your research and you just dig things up. You're holding up the Michael Jackson. I went, I went shopping in uh, to buy out vinyl today. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, you can't really. Um, so, you know, things like that. And that helped get my name around and, and do some things and stuff. But I was frankly very overwhelmed by the whole process. At the time I was self-taught. I didn't have a lot of music theory. I've caught up on that over the years. But at the time, they expected any kid to show up to be a session player or to have, you know, six okay. years of playing on stage. And so they were all like, well, who'd you study with? Where did you play? What bands have you been with? And I was a nerd in a basement that had won a synth competition. You know, I was the best Minimoog four-track person in the world at that particular moment. But they didn't know what that was, nor did they care. Um, Steve Picaro, two years later, was the one that brought me back to L.A. Steve called me. And at first, I actually turned him down. He says, I'd like you to come. I'm not going back to L.A. LA again, you're thinking, right? And I was like, you know what? I'm not doing that. It was like I was like a jilted girlfriend. I was like, yeah, yeah. I hear all these nice stories. Nah, nah, nah. Forget it. Um, so when they came to tour in Calgary, that's when we actually formally met and he insisted that I spend some time with him and, and, and Steve, just because he was more on the film score world than David was, he just opened some other doors, which led more down the path to things that I wanted to do. So, so in all this rambling, because, you know, I can't imagine someone listening to all of this, um, be sure you know what you want. And be sure that each time someone phones you for something exciting, make sure it's in the game plan that you really want to be in. It's always wonderful when somebody calls you because they like your art. You know, that's great for the ego. That's great to go tell your parents that somebody other than them actually likes your music or your art or your poetry, whatever it is you do. But you have to have a game plan and you have to realize, is that taking me where I want to go or is it a stepping stone to where I really want to go? And I think for all the technology and for all the music schools, I don't know if there's enough time spent on, on management and understanding who you are and, and how you can contribute to the industry. It's not about being famous. It's not about getting lots huh. of money. The two are not related. I have worked on some unbelievably famous projects that have paid lousy. And then I've worked on quietly on some things behind the scenes. And that's what's helped me pay the mortgage. 
Um, so you have to understand this is a business and you have to know where you're suited best and you look for those places to shine. And every few years I found something that just takes me to the next level. And then I work on something that didn't work out, creative dispute with the director or whatever. And suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm not popular anymore and they go with someone else and you just find ways to make it work bit by bit. You have to learn from every experience and go from there. But yeah, thank you, all these people. And yeah, thank you very much, Steve Picaro, for just bringing back the conference to me because I, I was completely overwhelmed by that first experience. In a way, I wish it hadn't happened. I wish it had happened 10 years later when I had some idea of what it is that I wanted to do. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah. So I want to explore the, 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 the idea of Steve and like musicians that make that transition from rock musician to to composer. Like I think of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross right. and like, right. like I think of the transition they made and into, into scoring. Um, yeah. Do you, do you, do you see a difference in not, not what they bring and it's not a better or worse thing, but the musicians that go into that, like that, um, that evolve into that versus somebody that comes purely from that space. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Um. It's, it's certainly more common now than it was before, and I think it's a wonderful evolution. When I got onto the scene, we were still in the world of John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Stuart mm, Phillips, right. uh, Lalo Schifrin, these orchestrally academically trained composers that created amazing music, and that's the path I wanted to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had synthesizers, so it was weird. So I was always looking at <laughs> combinations of synthesizers and orchestras. Now, people like Steve Piccaro, David Foster, James Newton Howard, wonderful composer. Um, they all came from a songwriting background yeah. and and slowly used their melodic sensibilities getting into music for film. And film also evolved. Audiences also evolved, right? The idea of songs as a backdrop to a film as opposed to just instrumental. And in this day and age now, we have a beautiful combination of both. We have songs that then give way to the score. The score sometimes has little mm-hmm. moments of the song in it. And that goes back to to, you know, the song becomes part of a statement or a pivotal moment in the storyline. And that kind of combination, I think, is beautiful. And people like Steve Piccaro, James Newton Howard, Trent Reznor, many other, um, Imogen Heap, I love her stuff. I got to meet her a few years ago, too. Um, You know, they've made that transition because they understand their melodic sensibilities and how it applies to film. And also audiences have become more sophisticated. So, you know, the old days, it was an orchestral score or it was an ethnic score or it was a rock score or it was a hip hop score or it was, a you know, now it can be everything. You can have this very cool ambient thing that has some strange element next to it and the two work so well. So musically, it's such an exciting time. I mean, we can literally do anything as long as as long as there's a passion to it and as long as there is there's a there's just a gem of an idea. It just needs to be a tiny little melody, tiny, a tiny motif, a, a groove. Um, you know, everything else can grow from that. And that's the combination of, of musicianship, technology, uh, and, and, you know, and good management and a good producer, knowing how to put the right things in the right places. Um, so, so that's how it evolved. And I was fortunate enough to come in on the ground floor of MIDI, uh, you know, the, the language that connects all these synthesizers to each other. And uh, I did a lot of tours with Roland synthesizers, showcasing all their new synths and how MIDI could connect to computers. I did all these road shows and I was composing music on stage and showing audiences and stuff. I was, I was such a hit with geeks 
all over the world. <laughs> you know, it was it was 400 seat theaters, but those theaters were packed, standing yes. room only. Every one of them, yes. you know, brilliant. Mosh geeks. pits <laughs> for yeah, geeks. So. Mosh pits for geeks. <laughs> did you did you by mosh chance know Paul geeks. Lau? Did you know Paul Lau? Oh, from yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So Paul was my tech. Paul was my tech no. forever. Yeah, I got, okay, woo, here we go. <laughs> well, yeah, when well, you it. mentioned about MIDI, the reason I asked is because this would have been early 90s. Paul and I were working with a wireless company out of California that he met at NAM, And okay. we, were, we were in the middle of, and we were so close to working with them because what I used to do is my, my setup, I'd have a, a Poly 800 as my yeah. remote. Yeah, and it would, it Corinne, would, you know, could you leave us alone? Just for, could you just? I'll be back. I'll be back, guys. Okay, I'm right there with you. I would have my my I'd have my whole control panel on the floor that would be controlling like the DX rack and yeah. Yeah. my GX APs and anyway. So I would have that going. Paul and I were so close to to connecting with this company, or not connecting with to have it working with this company to have wireless MIDI so that I would. Right so that I would convert it and nobody was doing it at the time. And right. Paul, I mean, I just, his mind is just beautiful. Like yeah. I love him so much. And yeah. just like, yeah. we were so close. And then I, I can't, I, I think I left the band at that point and, and didn't carry mm. on, but yeah, it was just, that was a, that was, you know, it actually got, he, he got written up about my rig in, I think it was like either Canadian musician or keyboard magazine or something. And it was just, yeah, it was, it was awesome. I mean, I love that guy. I can't, I don't have I have to thank keyboard magazine because Steve and I worked on a musical experiment that became the keyboard sound page. And that's what cinched the deal for me to get the record deal with Center Records that became Interstellar Suites. Again, all these things are connected, right? Um, Also in Chicago on a similar thing in 1987, we were doing uh, music for a NAMM show. That's the National Association of Music Merchants, and they have a show in the summer in Chicago, and then they have a show in the in the winter in in Anaheim. Uh, but in 1987, I had MIDI keyboards all speaking to a Roland Micro Composer and MC500, uh, and for the first time, we had it playing sampled noises that would feed directly to the slide projector computer. So by clicking notes on a keyboard, we could change slides on screen. That was the first time that had ever happened. You know, that's awesome. Again, you you can't get a date with information. <laughs> but as nerds, we were all just so thrilled. Then we go back to our family and our friends and our spouses and our you know, and they had no idea what we were talking about. But we were immortal, you know, for for those kinds of things. Oh gosh, I hope somebody's enjoying this tech fest. It's not just <laughs> this this will be Greg's episode. He's not going to release it. He's just going to listen to it. <laughs> On his phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is uh, yeah. this is silly. But yeah, uh, again, you know what? It's but it's people. It really is. I really have to emphasize that. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know this uh, this podcast gives me a chance just to look back, and uh, I'm grateful for all the great you know the music that I've been able to create and the opportunities I've been able to have. But but it happened because of people, like minded people. We found each other, and each one of us could help each other along the way. And that's a that's a huge part of it. And in COVID, man, do I miss that more than anything else? Mm. You know, in 2019, my goal was, you know, let's take a grand holiday, let's take a cruise, let's do, you know, something <laughs> like that. Now my goal is I want to have dinner, you know, with my co-writer Ari. That's what I want to have happen. Uh, How you know, did you and, and Ari first meet? 
Uh, we met through a, a mutual friend, another composer, Stacy Hirsch, and I was at that point in my life where I was getting really, really busy with, with the film projects that I was doing. Okay. And so what I needed was an orchestrator, somebody that could take the rough ideas that I had and then finish them off. And then that way I could start to become a you know, large operation and do that sort of thing. Um, within, gosh, weeks, I realized just how talented Ari was. He's a very gifted player. He's a beautiful player. I'm not that great a player. My first instrument was a Minimoog. I didn't start on piano. I started on Minimoog. So I'm like a woodwind player. I, I'm really good on monophonic instruments. And, and even in my writing, I can do orchestral lines one at a time. I'm really good at writing string arrangements and, and SATB arrangements and stuff. I think monophonically. Um, Ari had all that jazz piano background that I didn't have. And on the TV show that I was working on, the director suddenly went, we're making a change to the music. We're not going orchestral anymore. We're going to kind of go more for an R&B feel. So I looked at Ari and said, you just became a co-writer because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that stuff. And he just, he just pulled off these wonderful miracles. And we both realized that we have a certain amount of overlap. But between the two of us, there's really nothing we can't do. And that, that's expanded over the years as other composers I've worked with. Myro Stam recently worked with Sarah Sleen. Uh, we're about to work with Andrew Craig on a great project, which I can't tell you, but I can just name drop Andrew Craig, who's this brilliant guy. Um, and we're, we're going to be working together on that. So, yeah, but Ari and I, it's uh, we just it just really connected well. We both have a lot of respect for each other and for our, our various talents. And very soon it just got to be a shorthand. Um, I had rented a space and had a number of uh, composers in there for a while. So Ari and I used to hang out together for a good couple of years. We just both really got to know each other and built almost mirror studios. So we both used Apple's logic. Um, uh, but while we're talking about old gear, uh, Opcode Studio Vision was the first MIDI sequencer I ever had and loved it. If it was around to this day, I would still be on Opcode Studio Vision. There's four people out there that know what I'm talking about. I hope they're smiling as well. <laughs> um, but, but that's how it got to be for Ari and myself. Ari and B, as I call them. Um, and over the years, things just led to another thing. And then we bid on a project called Flashpoint, and nothing came from it. But... You guys lost out on that, right? You, you were like... Originally, we did not get yeah. Flashpoint. They decided to go with a marquee songwriter who was a great, talented person... Uh, but was not familiar with the deadlines of film and TV. They were not used to having to churn out a whole bunch of music in a very short amount of time. So suddenly we were on. They were like, you got the gig. What? And we had to do the first episode, I think, in like four days. Uh, and then decades later, the very same thing happened on Anne with an E. Uh, they went originally with a marquee singer-songwriter person. Great music, but again, could not turn things around that fast. And so that's twice now where something that we were told would never happen Suddenly, we were the guys. So uh, I, I don't believe anything anymore. When, when, you know, when really good news happens, I just try and take it with a grain of salt and say, okay, that sounds really nice. Let's, let's wait to see if, you know, when the money shows up in my bank right. and we yeah. pay our mortgage, that's when I'll get really excited. And conversely, sometimes I've had people say, that'll never happen. You know, I, I, I have many stories of that'll never happen where, nope, we've made it happen. You know, and it, I think it's it's the right combination of people and believing in yourself and being organized. You can you can make things happen, but it's hard. I you know, I, it's nice. All three of us are having these wonderful stories and how enjoyable they are. This is hard work. This is not something that happens overnight. Anybody that loves the fame and the money from this, that is not the reason to get into this. You have got to love this so much and you mm -hmm. have got to be surrounded by friends and family and spouses that understand that. 
And if they don't, you're all in for a very miserable time. So I want to warn you right now, <laughs> you know, that this is not for the faint of heart. It's great when it gets there, but it is a lot of sweat. Can you tell us a, a story of, of one of these projects that was really tough? Um, you know, hard, maybe there was arguments with the other producers or director, um, but one you look back on with a lot of satisfaction? Oh, th- there's actually a few of those. The beauty of writing music for film, and it takes a while to get used to this, you're not creating a score for yourself. You are creating a score for the film. The film tells you what you've got to do. And you can get as excited as you want about that melody that you just came up with or that great set of chord progressions that you know are so great. But if the director doesn't like it and if it's not working with the film, guess what? It's, it's not going to go there. And how you react to that and how you deal with that, I think, is a big part of whether you can have the longevity to, to put up with this. Uh, Ari and I have helped each other through this many times. One of us has come up with something and the other one listens and goes, wow, that's great. And we play it at the rough mix and the director goes, nah, not doing it for me. And then the other one has to talk the other one down off a ledge and say, look, it's a great piece of music. We'll find another place to use it. Um, so you just you just have to do that. But I can tell you more often than not, many times the directors come back to me and said, I don't like this. I think this can be better. And once I get over how angry I am that they don't like it and I go <laughs> back and I work on it, do you know what? It actually is better. And most of the time, it's by simplifying it. We love to get so clever with all of our toys. We get so excited about all of this stuff. We, most of the time, we're always overdoing it. We're adding so much stuff. And sometimes the objective ear of the director, or if you're fortunate enough to have a music producer or a good music editor or a good music supervisor that you can trust, they're the ones that listen and go, you know, great effort, good for you, but this is way too busy. There's too much going on over here. And you got to pull it back. You know, the, the, there's a term that an orchestrator's best tool is his eraser. This is a very mm. normal thing in orchestral composition. At first, you just throw all kinds of stuff, but by pulling back, by simplifying it, um, that's when the true nuggets come out. That happens all the time. And, uh, and I finally learned just to, just to accept it and just say, if this doesn't fly, it's all right. I know we're closer to the one that really will fly. Uh, and you learn not to take it personally. It's very hard. Because at the, at the time, you have to put your, everything into it. Um, it's, it's like a child that you then send out to the world, you know, and you give your child the very best you can. But once the child is out there, the rest is up to the child. You, you, you don't, you know, it's not up to you anymore. It's very much like that. Hmm. I'm, I'm just... It's, I'm, I'm, did I answer the question? I gave you, you all this moral fable stuff, but did I actually <laughs> answer your question? You, you did. I'm wondering if there's more there, though, in terms of... Like, what sort of feedback do you need? Is it feedback, less horns I'm in, or is it, oh. uh, I need it to sound more 80s, or it needs to, it needs, I want it to sound dirty. Like, what what sort of feedback? Because I'm, I'm you're, curious you're whether no, the language, on. yeah, whether the language Absolutely. is the same or not. Yeah, yeah. And this is good, because for, t- for potential filmmakers out there who are looking at working with a composer, you don't have to know all the musical terms. You don't have to know what horns are. You don't have to know what is adagio and what is, you know, you just have to talk emotionally. So just like uh, you said, Karim, about, you know, talking, sa- sound like the 80s. Well, you know, what 80s? Are we talking Thomas Dolby 80s? Are we talking, you know, Beastie Boys 80s? What, what are we talking? Um, and then also just using emotions. That's the best one. I 
this scene needs to be about regret. This scene needs to be about hope. This scene needs to be about, um, you know, identity. This needs to be uh, uncertainty. And then at this particular point, this has to be about the answer to that question. And so by speaking in storyline terms and speaking in dramatic terms, um, the whole team has an understanding of, of where to go. Um, that's what we found the best way is when you're trying to describe music to fit a scene. Uh, if you ever get this opportunity, uh, watch a scene without music because, you know, so my different. wife has seen that sometimes. Oh, yeah. She'll see me working on a work tape and there's this big, long scene and there's no sound effects yet. All there is is little lines of dialogue and that's it. So the birds and the trees are not even there yet. You know, the, the, the birds flying by, all these other little things happening on screen, it's all silent. And then you have to come up with something that, that, that is a counterpoint to all of that. Um, and then when it's fused with the sound effects, with all the other dialogue, that's when it's, you know, then, then it's all complete. You know, film scoring is not about writing the perfect piece of music. It is about writing the piece of music that makes all the other elements perfect. You're writing to make the film perfect. You're not writing perfect music. Yeah. It's very functional. You have to solve problems. I, I think those of us that have been fortunate enough to, to do this for a long time, we're known for solving problems. I mean, even when that producer came to me and said, this needs to be R&B music, we're going that direction. I knew that wasn't me. I had to just put my ego at the door. I'm not going to learn R&B overnight. I'm a nerd. I listen to Jerry Goldsmith when I go to sleep. Um, but there is Ari with this unbelievable skill. So it's like, meet my co-writer. He's going to join me. We're going to solve your problem. And that's exactly yeah. what happened. When a, when a director comes to you and says, this scene is about regret. Right. Where do you go for, like, you don't have a button. This is the regret sound. Or maybe you do. I don't know. Oh, please. What, what? May there not be ever a button mark. I will regret a button <laughs> mark regret. That's terrible. Where do you, um, where do you go for that? Do you. Like, every do you one of us, in any kind of art, we take all of our experiences of music that has inspired us. We take all of the stories of our lives that we have gone through. And then all of that comes out as art. Any singer-songwriter, any composer, any poet, any writer, any, you know, architect, it all comes from Get it. taking all kinds of things from the world uh, and then getting it back in a way that is, that is you. So regret, yeah, I know about regret. There are relationships in my life. There are moments in my life where I lost out on something. I know about regret. Uh, um, so you channel that you learn the vocabulary of what the score is uh, in Anne with an E it was a combination of a lot of Celtic stuff again that was more Ari specialty but we also had this ambient classical stuff and that was kind of my world so a piece about regret I wrote for piano and cello worked with this great cellist Kirk Starkey and uh, and you know when it was done we had the producers in tears it worked so perfectly um, and it's and Ari says this to you. It's when you can make them cry, that's great. That's that's the, that's the goal is to make them cry. Um, so so you it's it's that combination of things, but you I've read this somewhere. It's about thinking with the heart and feeling with the brain. You're orchestrating, you're creating things, but you you have to know what the end result is and build in all the surprises that lead to that moment. What would this be like for somebody who has never heard this before? Where is the surprise? Where is the clever chord change? Where is the moment that nobody expected? 
And you do that in a story and you do that with a song, you do that with a lyric, you do that, you do that with instrumental so, music. And it's all sense. about knowing how to craft all those surprises in any kind of presentation. It can be a, yeah, yeah. Be a PowerPoint presentation. It doesn't matter. The idea of, of communicating an idea to an audience um, and, and the tools that, that go with that. Yeah, and it could be, it could be, I mean, to your point, it could be a sales pitch for that matter. It's just it's about oh, crafting yeah. the message. So what, what I'd be- We all have to does, sell. There's sell, yep. salesmanship is Everybody, you're always My selling. Dad was a you're re- always on Yeah, we are. We are, absolutely. My dad was a realtor. I learned a lot of things from him. I was very grateful. My dad was a very passionate man, but was also a, a good leader and, and learned to be a good salesman because you've got to sell an idea. That's exactly what so much of this is. And, and Sorry, Greg, you were going to say. No, no, I was going to ask, the question I was going to ask is, um, you talk about those nuances and the, 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 the subtleties of it. I'm interested, I'm keen to get your view on the differences between writing with scores for television versus film. I assume with film, you have a little more, not enough freedom, but uh, you tell me. Um, for me, it's been more about television than film over the years. I've done about half a dozen films, but a lot okay. of television shows. Yes, you're right. Film, there is more. There is more time. There is more latitude. There's a larger palette to play with. Quality-wise, that has really changed. The, the two hmm. are now very much the same. Uh, when I first started, a TV show was much cheaper and sounded cheaper and looked cheaper than a film. <laughs> but you look at, oh, gosh, I'm trying to think of the first series. Was it, was it Six Feet Under? One of the first things where you saw this unbelievable quality from a TV show. What? Right. Um, and, and now, I mean, anything, right? I mean, I'm proud of things like Anne with an E, uh, The Queen's Gambit. Yeah, it just yeah. came out uh, for all mankind, the show on Apple TV about the Apollo moon uh, landing and the astronauts involved in that. It's actually an alternate reality story. Um, in this day and age, and thanks to the technology, our cameras are all better. Our technology is all better. We don't have to deal with film processing anymore. It's all digital. You can tell stories with significantly better visual and audio quality. So, so that line has blurred. The thing I love about television more than film, frankly, is there's a deadline. Like, mm. this has got to get done by Friday. You, you know, you don't have a month to go away on a sailboat and think about tropical trees and which birds will inspire you to write the right flute melody and stuff. I, sometimes <laughs> I find that really, I, I've met some composers and, and the ones that can really make this work still have that inner sense of a deadline. Um, but I've, I've seen and heard a lot of, well, a lot of projects where there's too much time. There's too much time for, for horsing around and not really having a strong idea. There's too much time for many people to keep changing their minds. Um, and, and the beauty of a deadline sometimes is like one way or another, this is done by Friday. Like whatever, however good you can make it by Friday, it's done. And sometimes that's great because it solves a lot of arguing. It solves a lot of second guessing yourself. You don't have time to walk away and think, oh, should I have done it this way? Should I have done it this way? You, know, you go with your first instincts. And sometimes that's really, really great. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so while there's, you know, the line between film and television is, is there's not, there's not a big line anymore. I think it's the two of them are really, really getting closer and closer. Fascinating. What are you working on now? Um, I am working on an animated series with Ari called Luna Let's Go. Um, it's a fun animated uh, kind of not preschool, but young, young, uh, uh, young kids kind of show. And it's about, it's an animated story about Luna the moon. And she visits these kids. The moon comes down from the sky and visits these kids and they go to different parts of the world. 
when Ari first told me about it, I was like, you know what? I, I'd done a lot of children's stuff. I didn't really want to focus on that kind of thing. But then I saw the show and I saw the stories and, and it's like Looney Tunes cartoons. Like some of these characters are just hilarious. And I get to write all this big orchestral music. You know, these, these, these people that, that, that are in the storyline and one of them has a big crisis and I get to go huge. I get to do big orchestral stuff. So I'm having a field day. We did a Godzilla tribute a few months back. That was fun. Um, it's been nominated for some Canadian Screen Awards. We just got nominated for that this year. Congrats. Another show I worked on called Thank You. I, uh, I, I'm thrilled and surprised it came through and, and, uh, and, and very grateful to be nominated. It's a whole bunch of us, me, Ari, and Chris Kuzdak are the writers on that one. And then last year, I got to work with Sarah Sleen, who's now getting into film scoring. She's amazing. And so me, Ari, and Sarah Sleen worked on a show called Detention Adventure, which is a fantasy mystery kind of thing. And again, got to write lots of orchestral John Williams-like stuff, which I, which I love to do. Um, and then there is a series coming up, which I would have loved to tell you today, but I can't because <laughs> our agents are still making the deal with the people and all that stuff. So we could do an update if you update your podcast. I think you do do that sometimes. So I can, I can tell you later on if it came through or not. Sounds um, good. But thank you, COVID. Despite COVID, um, because what we do is so insular and because I moved to a home studio a few years ago just to save on costs, um, we were able to continue functioning. And I think studio musicians, not only those with the composed music, but I, you know, I have a cellist in Hamilton. I have another cellist, another, you know, another uh, violin player in another part of town. I have a trumpet player in Vancouver. I have all these people everywhere. And if I want to add that beautiful live instruments to what I'm doing, I send them a MIDI file or I send them notation. And two hours later, a WAV file shows up in my inbox and I drop it into the Pro Tools session. And, and now I have live players. It's amazing. It's it really is amazing what what we can do in this day and age. But I I, I want to. This is really important to state that you you have to have an idea. You have to walk away from this. You have to go for a walk. You have to, you know, live a life. Be with your friends. Be with your loved ones. And that's where the ideas come from. And then you come into this room and 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 put those ideas to use. Yeah, in, inspiration has to come from somewhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, is there? You talked right up at the top uh, about being a huge Star Wars and Star Trek fan. Um, oh my goodness! Do you have another hour? Really? Okay, <laughs> you opening this door? Well, we'll 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 take a peek. Let's take a peek at it. And and as that is your inspiration, um, are there projects that um, are sort of your dream projects that you haven't yet done or worked I've, on? This is that's a very good point, Kerm, and I'm actually very grateful you brought this up because it's my chance to tell anybody listening out there. I would love to work on science fiction. <clears throat> you know, I, I I wanted to work on Star Trek, but I got to work on Flashpoint, which is still great. Yeah, because <clears throat> if you because if you really think about it, Flashpoint is like Star Trek. You've got this team that are out there solving dangerous situations and becoming friends with each other. And I, and and I got to do a lot of orchestral stuff disguised under all kinds of hip hop loops uh, for Flashpoint uh, that was very much like a Star Trek score. Um, yeah, I would love to do more science fiction. I would absolutely love to do that world because I think sonically and musically you're playing with a vocabulary that I'm very familiar with and I think mm. works very well for that sort of thing. But I'm, you know, again, I am not ungrateful for the things that I have got to work on. I've been of able to course. work on some really, really wonderful projects. And I think anybody you've had on this podcast will tell you they're in a place where they're very happy, but they never expected they would land there. You know, we, we all have those goals to start with, you know, 
But 24 hours ago, last night, I, I cleared everything and, and, and made sure that I had the living room to myself because my wife wanted to watch this TV show. I said, could you watch that on the other TV? Because I cranked the Star Trek uh, score by Jerry Goldsmith to Star Trek, the motion picture, and followed along with the score that I had just bought. And page by page, note by note, I followed along the entire score with the big Klingon themes and Beecher, the giant <laughs> creature and Spock trying to mind meld with a wormhole. And I, I knew every note off by heart, but it was beautiful to see just how Jerry Goldsmith did those amazing combinations and uh, how he used the tuba as a melodic instrument much more than I thought he did. And how certain things that I thought were done by, by brasses were actually done by some very clever woodwind writing. So, so there we go. Hopefully wife, someone other than me enjoyed that. Your wife My didn't join you for that? <laughs> no, she was very happy that I was happy. And that's okay. the best you can hope for. <laughs> and that's fine. You know, that, awesome. that picture of her sitting next to the sequential keyboard. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, <laughs> but it's great. We support Perfect. each other on all kinds of things. So, so I, I usually have a question I ask now before we wrap it up. That's about what do you listen to, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to geeking it out. Um, so oh, I think I told you, of, like it's a combination of image and heap and Jerry Goldsmith. Like, <laughs> I don't know how that works on an Apple playlist, but you know, that's the kind of thing. I love the Apple robot trying to figure out what I like to listen to. What was your question, Greg? <laughs> no. So in, in honor of my hand painted, so Christopher Mills, who's, who's, who, has directed like Modest Mouse, has flowed on, and a whole bunch of like a whole bunch of Blue Rodeo and Russian. Uh, anyway, he wow. hand painted back when we were kids by Paul Eight Hundred, and it was a scene of uh, from Blue Velvet. So it was um, it was Dean Stockwell and a naked Isabella Rossellini, and and I left it with one of my bandmates, um, and I think he sold it for rent. So no, so. And I, and I Google, even to this day, I will every, probably every few months or six months, jump onto Google and look for hand-painted Poly 800. But anyway, that's not, that, I mean, that's just the setup. So what are, instead of the music, three things you're listening to, what are the three boards that got away? Oh, you, that's <laughs> bad. That's. No, let's end this on a positive note. Really, that's going to be depressing. No, um, not, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the ones that got away. I mean, you know what? I, I, I and again, you know what? I'm, I'm. Marriage number two meant a very expensive divorce to marriage number one, and I was very proud of that. But had I not gotten divorced, I would still have a very, very large studio that I could have afforded for a few more years, and that means a lot of the gear would be everywhere. Um, as a result of a fair alimony. Um, I had to refinance a lot of things and rethink a lot of stuff. Uh, also, it doesn't help that streaming has come along and it's really hurt us composers and songwriters mm. because the money that comes from streaming is cents to the dollar of money that comes from broadcasting. So that's another conversation that you'll have with other mm. people. Uh, thank you, SoCan, and, and, and people all over the world that are working on this. Streaming is wonderful. I don't want people's prices to go up at home. Uh, but somewhere along the path, somebody is making too much money and, and we're not getting enough of it. So we have to work on that. Uh, so that's why some stories are regretful stories. They're gear I had to sell, you know, to refinance things. Yep. Uh, one of them was an ARP 2600. I had an ARP 2600. And, uh, 
as part of a package deal of some services that would help my company. That person wanted the ARP, and so that was part of the deal. So mm. there's the big right there. The other weird regret, I still have my Mini Moog. Thank you. I never got rid of my Mini Moog, and I have it. I was going to go to the positive there with the Mini Moog. Yep, okay. Yes, but the negative part of the Mini Moog is a few years into it, I had it retrofitted. There was a time where everybody was souping up all of their gear. And so I had one of the custom Riviera mods done by, well, I won't mention their name because they did a wonderful job. But after I got it home and had all these extra buttons and all these additional routings that I could have never done before, um, it, it became a very different beast. Hmm. And suddenly that those four switches I know how to go to to get the best French horn sound, suddenly I had to use eight switches because there were these new options that I'd wanted, mm -hmm. but didn't realize that th those involved more decisions. So I regret uh, modifying my Minimoog. And uh, I actually tried to see if I could enter the Minimoog raffle, um, but I wasn't allowed to because, uh, I'm going to ask this, what date is this podcast going to run? Monday. Oh, all right. Then I can't tell you. Um, <laughs> all right. Never mind. How do I get out right. of that story? <laughs> uh, for reasons that will become clearer on the 20th of April, I could not enter the mini mode raffle. But Fair my enough. really good friend, Neil Parfit, won the mini mode raffle. Mini, but Neil, as you may know, is a brilliant keyboard synthesis, orchestrator, composer guy, working on a lot of animation stuff. And he's the nicest guy on the planet. Neil has as many awards for his music as he does for saving people on tech support. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy. So I'm thrilled he got the Minimo and very envious. And I hope that, you know, there isn't some terrible shipping accident that happens that, that his Minimo gets lost or, you know, gets re -divert, diverted or to your house, diverted to my house. Or when I suddenly find <laughs> out about a poly 800 that has cover art, I will go to Neil's house, you know, in the dark of night, steal his new mini mode, bring it to you. And then, you know, we'll work something out. Uh, Neil's a good guy. I wouldn't want to do that to him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those kinds of regrets. Yes. Yeah, that's three regrets right there. Yeah, it wasn't, and, and I didn't mean it to be necessarily regrets. It's just like, there are, you know, there are boards that were some of my favorite boards that I, you know, sold and bought the next greatest thing, whether it's, you know, but again, I was a big rolling guy. And it's, and it's like, uh, and I remember like my, even my JXAP that I got that, that oh, originally and then sold it. And then years later, I'm like, I want that again. I want that in my rack. I want that in so my rig. Else. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Kareem, I mean, over to you, buddy. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining us. I have no clue what you guys were talking about. You guys are excited, yeah. though, which is good. <laughs> I I hope anybody who is still listening at this point, I hope that the three of us were able to impart something positive to you. <laughs> and I thank you for listening to, you know, I was going to say three old guys, but but varying ages. I'm certainly the old guy uh, sharing war stories. I I hope it was beneficial to somebody. And, and thank you for this opportunity just to, to talk about gear and talk about this. I appreciate it. I, I crazy thank you business that we're in. Oh, yeah. A pleasure. Thank you. Where, where can people go, I mean, if they want to find out more about you and your work? Uh, it's called a website. It's, I know that's a strange, you'll have to Google what that <laughs> word on. is. Um, yeah, website. Quite simply, aminbatia.com. And that'll connect <laughs> you to everything else that's connected and stuff. Yes, I have Facebook and I have, you know, Instagram and I have Twitter. I hate Twitter. Sorry. I'm, I use it because we all use it. I don't get Twitter. I just don't. Uh, <laughs> I like to get work done. How, how do people get work done? I don't know. Okay. 
So yeah, the West. That's another. That's another podcast. <laughs> yes, aminbatia.com. There it is. I mean, this has been great. This is like fascinating. Thank you so much for uh, for spending you. some time with us today. Oh, thank you both so much, and continued success to both of you, both in this and in all of your musical pursuits as well. Thank you very much. Thank you.